0: You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to The Strong Towns Podcast. We're live from CNU 26 in Savannah, Georgia, On the podcast with me now, we're doing From Vision to Policy, Making New Urbanism Work. And of course, if you're going to make things work, you have to get women involved. (laughs) No, that's not why you're here. You're here because you're like really successful at actually accomplishing stuff. Just some men are capable of doing that too. But you three are exceptionally good at this. On the far end of the table, for those of you watching at home, we have Maria Kearney. She's a partner at DPZ. Hazel Boris, of course. Of course. Been on the podcast a number of times. Thank you. Welcome back, and Susan Henderson. The two of you are principals at Placemakers, I think the official planning firm of uh, strong towns or something like that. We have like Scott and uh, and Ben are on tomorrow, so we we can't do CNU without chatting with lots of placemakers. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Go ahead and say hello, so people know hear your voice. Hello, it's great <laughs> to be here again.
1: Hi, this is Marina. And I'm also um, happy to finally be face-to-face with Chuck and Hazel and Susan, of course. We
0: are Facebook friends, but we've not really got to chat before. And that's a, it's a nice relationship to be friends on Facebook, yeah. but it's better in person. Correct. Um, Hello. Go ahead, Susan. Susan. I want to talk about this vision to policy. And let's talk about uh, vision at first. Because I actually think like a big part of turning vision into policy is getting the vision right. How do you go about actually engaging with people so that when you get to the policy, you're confident that you've got the vision right, that you've engaged the community in the right way. Marina, would you like to start with that one first? So
1: I think DPZ, along with placemakers, were we're very much about trying to get the community involved from the get-go you know the usual techniques work you know about the, the way we do charrettes the way we we try to get out into the community the way we typically try to engage with the um, the different stakeholders who have often when we're coming in they've they've written that comprehensive plan which is full of good intentions and great principles it falls apart at the part of how do you activate it yesterday's session initially I was, I was a little perturbed by it the plenary because I felt that, that that Julian and I told him this didn't get who we were at the CNU that we and we basically get done as I told him very crudely you know so we're, we're very pragmatic and there's no one solution it's whatever whatever a community needs is sort of what we try to work with the vi- getting to the vision is definitely part of it personally that's not the hardest part it's the implementation part where the challenge lies and I find that people are too too many communities are too easy with the words. I mean, everybody wants to be sustainable. Everybody wants to be livable. Everybody wants uh, multimodal transportation. Everybody wants the, the pedestrian friendly. Everybody wants to be bike friendly. Everybody wants the missing middle. Everybody wants the housing choices. So that part has been won. And that's not, that's not an easy feat because 20 years ago, it wasn't that way. But that's a very big victory. But now the hard part is actually the implementation of it.
0: Okay. I, I don't want to belabor this point but I, I do want to give you guys a, a shot at this as well. Are we doing visioning well? I agree with Marina that the plans read very nice. We're sustainable. We're environmentally friendly. We're going to do transit, missing middle. We've got all the buzzwords in there. But if visioning doesn't change, in a sense, like in people's hearts in a community, if they don't actually have a vision that, that goes with that plan, does that make implementation really hard? And how are you getting that good vision in place?
2: We really believe that we have to pick the biggest little thing and have a series of small wins before you can really make massive change. So I think establishing a positive vision is so important to be honest with yourself and and really reflect the local capacity for getting things done. For me, I think that the best visions are the ones that are realistic for for what can happen within the time frame of that particular planning horizon. And so great if you really can be, you know, the most walkable city in your region, but don't say those words unless there's some kind of reality potentially backing you up because the biggest problem with with the stated written visions of towns and cities and counties is the fact that the locals frequently just don't trust the words.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. Please, Susan.
3: I agree in theory with what they both said, but but we don't always get the vision right and we've had some miserable Uh, jobs where we go in and they say oh it's all done it's in the comp plan everybody agreed just do what the comp plan says and we get into the community and start the dialogue and there was a huge contingent that never showed up and participated and now are really angry about it because they don't agree with the vision and so it's about getting to The authentic dialogue where those negotiations can take place and in some places we go I remember one city we were a university town years ago where we spent the whole charrette week being the community shrink because there was such distress between two contingencies and so actually getting the vision right can be very very hard work and Sometimes we're wildly successful, but frankly, there have been failures.
1: One of uh, Julian's good points yesterday, which was, in order to get the vision right, you need the right constituents there, and more often than not, it's not the you don't get a cross representation of the community at those sessions. It's usually, you know, the the civically obsessed, as uh, Johnny Longo likes to call them, who who show up, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. It's just there's certain people who tend to show up to these comprehensive plan visions and a lot that don't. So it's very hard for a city to come to an agreement as to what they want to be.
0: How do you start to get over that? If someone is working three jobs and trying to keep a family running and, you know, trying to balance all these things. I mean, my wife criticized me because our community was doing a school renovation and I thought the whole plan was horrible, but I really didn't speak up until it was a proposal that the community was going to vote on. And she said, it's too late. You should have been involved two years ago. And I said, you know my life. When was I supposed to do that? How do we respect the modernity and the fact that people are really busy and they don't show up when it's convenient for us as planners to have them show up? Just
2: like we have multimodal or we strive for multimodal uh, streets and trails and and connectivity, we have to have a multimodal communication base. So we have to give people tools that they can communicate with when they can't be there. So for us, you know, that's all the typical things like a really interactive, easy to use iSharet website, you know, where people can engage even if they're not in town. But also, I think even more importantly, we've never had a great local turnout unless we have great local partners who really understand how to convene community.
3: Yeah, Yeah, I agree completely. And then getting to even more of the nuts and bolts, we found in a very poor community, an immigrant community in southern New Mexico, the way to enable people to show up in the evening was to provide dinner, to provide childcare, to provide gas vouchers. Now, not every local government has those sorts of resources, but you have to understand what the barriers to participation are, and you know do whatever it takes uh, to overcome those barriers. But and Go ahead. one last thing, I would add to
1: that. Um, I, I completely agree with what Susan and Hazel were saying. Finding the local champions, absolutely. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, you still only get a tiny minority of the population that's going to attend. What we have found to be effective, and I think it's it's getting to your question about implementation, is to try to find, we know, I mean, it doesn't matter what community we live in. Generally speaking, 80% of the problems, you're going to encounter them. I mean, to different degrees of severity and different degrees of, uh, of affordability and different degrees of inclusiveness or different degrees of whatever it may be. We know the problems, and, so, and we know what the solutions need to be. You have to craft them for the communities. So it's about expanding the range of options that a community can have. So even if people feel that they haven't come, we can at least say we've addressed these issues. We know you have these issues. We know that your demographics are pointing to the fact that, you, that this is sort of where you're trending. The market analysis shows us this. As CNUers, I think we have an incredible toolkit of, of knowledge that provides us with the the tools that can be applicable to those kinds of communities that then the civic leaders can take back to their own neighborhood associations or to their own churches and start to share and start to get feedback on.
0: I want you to reject this question if you need to. But I remember back in the days when I would do comp planning and you would come to a community and, and when you walk in the door, you're very optimistic about what can happen. And you're very optimistic about the place and the people and your mind's kind of open to their greatness in a sense. But always, I was very like, quickly aware of this place is screwed up and I can't fix it. This place is moving in the right direction and I'm really excited to be part of this momentum. I'm not going to ask you to go through the characteristics of the ones that are screwed up. I'd like you to talk, talk about the things that for you are like signals, you know, those kind of subliminal cues you get when you walk in that like, okay, this is a place that has a lot of upside potential. And boy, am I excited as a professional to be part of this conversation here. When you walk in the door, what are the things that, that hit you? Susan, you want to tackle that first?
3: I would love to, because we have two (laughs) beloved clients sitting here in the, in the audience with us today. Oh, we're going to
0: name
3: names. um, I'm I'm not going to name names, but I'm (laughs) going to send happy smiles and appreciation. Because both of these clients were in very different, they're different cities. One was economically depressed when we came and the other one was economically very successful. But they both had incredible leadership at the professional staff level. And so when you saw that leadership and you, and you saw the depth of their understanding of the problem and a very clear commitment to an absolutely clear vision, then we knew that it was going to be... We, we assumed it was absolutely going to be successful. Now, one has a very happy ending and one has a less than ideal ending, and it had to do with staff shifts. In the one community... The uh, city manager stayed and enhanced his staff with other CNU members that were very talented, and they are really moving the mission forward. And in the other city, the city is still very successful and is doing very well, but the visionary retired. And when that happened, the momentum of the project, I didn't realize how important he was to the city as a whole, until he was there no longer. Sure. So, but I, I think leadership is the single most important thing. And, and sometimes it's elected officials and sometimes it's staff, but it makes all the difference in the world.
0: Marina, when you walk into a place and you know, you just get that feeling that this is a good place to be, what, what are the cues for you?
1: I, I think there's a lot of cues for good places. I, I'll, I'll spend two seconds talking about the places that, where the cues are not so good. Yeah. I 100% agree with Susan that it's the, you need those local champions who are going to be there. And that, and then that's, that speaks actually to the, to the importance of the vision because if it's simple enough for people to grasp and the elected officials want the six talking points that they're going to use with their constituents, they don't want to know the details, it's important that there be clarity on the vision and the local champion to support it. I'm still young enough that I think I, I'm very optimistic in every community I go. I feel we're there. We've been hired for a reason by virtue of what we represent as CNUers and new urbanists and whatever we want to call ourselves, uh, that they're, they've hired us for a reason. Uh, so I, I always feel that we can affect change. I get demoralized when I feel that there's no faith in the public process or that there's, there's a complete lack of trust of the citizens vis-a-vis the government, sometimes well-founded, sometimes not well-founded, but when they're paying lip service to, well, we, want your, we want your community input, but really they've already made their minds up, Or when, that's one time, the other time is when the developers have already gotten the signals from the elected officials that a project or many projects are going to happen, regardless of what happens. And so that's when I often feel this isn't going to work, you know?
0: Right. Hazel, I want to specifically ask you about poor communities versus affluent communities. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. My experience is that when I've worked with poor communities, communities that struggle with resources and and would be more on the scale of, of less affluent, that those places tend to have a certain level of like innate dynamism, maybe not in the leadership, but in the community as a whole. I found affluent communities, and I know you've worked in many where it's like a resort town or what have you, that's pretty much where I live. The ones that were very affluent, they were kind of hit and miss. Some of them had good internal dialogue, but a lot of them, we could never build real momentum to have a deep conversation. Am I on to something? Have you experienced this? Is this something that you've uh, seen or not?
2: I agree that, you know, we've worked in a lot of challenged communities in fact that's usually where we end up and you're right there's that there's you know that set of almost uh, de facto mayors out there who can really bring the community together and get things done in in the face of seriously bad odds but then you're right in more affluent places people like the system more because it's paying them and they don't necessarily want any change to happen. And and so there's that, it's just inertial forces, right? So it's a it's an object in motion and it's a big object. So
0: it's really hard to redirect it. Right. Let's switch to action, taking action. We're going to get things done. When someone gives you a call, when you go into a place, what are the things you're assessing when you walk in the door in terms of like the recommendations you make? I'd like to really talk about that transition from the comp plan to policy, whether it's ordinances or codes or whether it's changes in uh, the way staff processes things. What, What are the kind of things that you're dealing with when you make that transition from one to the other? Marina, you want to start with that?
1: Well, we talk about uh, doing a, a capacity assessment. Uh, first, assessing it from what we were just speaking about from the political standpoint. Is there the political will to make those changes? Uh, do you have the processes in place in which that, that can be enabled? Do you have the support of the folks you want? That the staffers have the support of the divisions or the divisions or the department heads talking to themselves at that level? So, that's one set of capacity changes. Two, it's identifying the barriers that are preventing you from getting to those visions. And it often goes to their zoning code. I don't remember a time when we haven't started off with doing a, you know, a serious assessment of the zoning to try uh, affect those changes that are necessary to get them to where they want to be. So there's the political capacity assessment, there's the regulatory assessment, and then there's the, there's the community assessment. Like How do people feel about, are they really supportive? Are they really wanting to participate? Are they really wanting those kinds of changes within their community? And how do you build that support to help those who are making the tough decisions to get to where they need to be?
0: I want to try to anticipate some of the questions I think people will have on overcoming obstacles for getting things done. I think one of them you just raised kind of maybe indirectly, and that is the staff support. Sometimes we go in and we have just dynamic staff. Sometimes we go in and we have, quite frankly, like D-level staff staff. Sometimes we're dealing with silos and hierarchies. Sometimes we're dealing with like great dynamic teams. Let's focus on the hard ones. How do you deal with staff that maybe has limited capacity to actually see some of these things through? What happens when you walk in the door and and that's what you're facing?
3: That's a great point. Uh, we've been working with CNU has currently has a project out now called uh, the Project for Code Reform, and it's about aligning the capacity of the municipality with the type of reform. Uh, form-based codes, which we all write and love, are like the Cadillac of of coding, of urban urban coding, but. So what are the tiny tweaks you can make if you don't have the staff? And we met this in Michigan with the Michigan Municipal League. We met this small town where it was one guy. He was the director of economic development, the director of planning, the director of public works. He was the zoning. He was the one guy that did everything. You have to assess your solutions that are implementable based on what what the capacity is, and and there are ways to do that very effectively. You just, but you have to craft the tool to fit the situation.
0: Marina, go ahead.
1: Well, we have worked in, in communities in which, and um, recently actually, in which this, there was an incredible level of distrust in the government and in the, the community and the staff. I don't know if it's because they were just exhausted or whether they were they had just lost faith. The level of apathy was doing an incredible disservice to a city council that actually really knew what they wanted and were trying to get it done. It's rare that you find an apathetic city council and an apathetic uh, department. Usually one will counterbalance the other. And so in this case, it was a city council that was able to uh, shake things up a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. What do we tell people when we talk to them, community members and they say, you know, we all know what needs to happen. The staff is not like nobody's listening. We're not getting there. What, what do you do when you have a difficult staff? Hazel?
1: Well,
2: the challenge also is if you're the guy who never answers the phone, Jackie Benson would say, you know, she would have said, well, that's your brand. And even if you say, I answer the phone as my new brand, you don't. That's not your brand. Your brand is that you don't answer the phone. So we can't like change that local culture unless there's a will to change from the inside. So I think it still goes back to that doing, you know, the biggest little thing, looking for those small incremental wins that the staff has enough attention to actually listen to the community and and kind of prove that point. But to go back to your other question about supporting staff who are just, maybe they're not listening because they're just so overextended that they don't have the ability to have that many hours in the day. Frequently, we just remain on call on an as-needed basis, and and the city or the town can tap us for, you know, reviewing projects and saying, look, these are the lightning rods you need to deal with. Sometimes 10 years after we write the code, someone just came back to us today and said, hey, can you you look at this development proposal and tell us how it breaks the spirit of the code if it does? And so being able to know when to call for help is kind
0: of important. Sure, sure. I feel like at CNU here, we are obviously raising, I mean, there's a ton of people from cities here who are not practitioners necessarily, but who are interested people. What happens when we get all this momentum and then it gets to the traffic engineer who vetoes whatever, or it gets to like the one person in the silo who steps up? What would be your advice for people for overcoming that kind of like internal uh, roadblock?
3: That's a great question. We had a form-based code boot camp here on Tuesday, a shoulder session, and I was so impressed. There's a county in Virginia that not only was the entire planning staff there, they brought their fire chief and their fire marshal. And so the department that usually has no engagement until they show up and say no, they were there from the very early stages of education, and I said kudos to that planning director, but the biggest barrier is really the fact that usually planning is done by planning, and then you have public works, engineering, and fire that are involved in plan review, but the planning director doesn't always get them integrated from the beginning of the project, and so education and dialogue and negotiation from the beginning is really critical to having a supported product at the end.
1: I think our experience is the same in the sense that Public Works is the biggest, the the folks we tend to butt heads with the most. Ten years ago, we didn't have the tools, we didn't have the case studies, we didn't have the uh, success stories to back up why we're proposing what we're proposing. Now there's a plethora of great information out there from the work you do, from the work. And and it's not only from a transportation standpoint. It's the physical aspect of it. It's the health aspect of it. It's the economic aspect of it. It's the demographic part of it. It's it's all these pieces that are coming together that the public works folks have to be convinced of. Now, in many cases they are. In some cases they're not. We just did a, a project in a community in which the fire chief actually looked at us with a straight face and said, we were trying to convince the city to put on-street parking on residential streets and to allow residents to do that. And he basically said, every parked car on a street is a hindrance to me. And that was his mentality. And so you're going to encounter people that, are, that you just hope they retire soon. And this guy, by the way, was counting down his, the days to his retirement. Right,
0: right. Yeah, Darwin, progress comes one funeral at a time sometimes. Yes. Let me flip this a little bit from a staff inertia to public officials. I get a lot of times and I know you all do too people who will call you up and say we really need help I'm a staff person I'm trying to get, how can you change my counsel? how can you get them what are what are like the three magic words you can utter uh, or tell me to say what's the one white paper you can give me that will turn this around and it's always like frustrating for me because there is no such thing you have to do this really hard work on the ground when you go into a community i'm kind of starting with you hazel and the staff is really great and they've got great things the community seems to have some some momentum behind this but you've got a couple council members that are just intransigent they just don't want to listen how do you start that conversation how do you make that conversation productive at the end of the day
2: Well, you have to find the things they care about and then, you know, data mine the massive numbers of studies that tie those things to urban form, because I guarantee you they're out there. They care about something that's positive, and there will be a study that ties to it, so... Whether it's happiness or loneliness or or healthcare costs or you know tax return per acre or jobs or you know I mean the, we can just go on and on and, and routinely on on place shakers I try every year or so to publish my favorite 70 studies that relate to that and then just keep them updated on a daily basis because I think that it's all about the story and being good
1: storytellers but the story changes. I think humanizing it and getting them to understand that, you know, we, we always get frustrated when we hear them say, we hear, so often we hear, this is not possible in my community. Yes, it may work here, but it's not going to work here. And just, that's probably the most, uh, the thing we hear the most all the often, all yep. the time.
0: We're not Portland. We're it's, not, you know, exactly. fill oh, in the blank. It may work yeah. here,
1: but it doesn't work there. Going back to the case studies, it's literally sh- first understanding and not, not blowing off sort of their, their legitimate fears. Whether they're legitimate or not, it is their, especially the elected officials who hold that power, helping them understand, first getting to the root of why is it that you fear this, and here are how other cities have solved it. And let's figure out what works for your community. Now it doesn't always work, but it often can. But, but to Hazel's point, being really listening, really listening, and coming in with sort of no preconceived ideas as to how it should be, is a good start.
0: Oftentimes we're asked to provide a solution to problems that are, if not unsolvable, at least more complex than like a simple solution will provide. So that, that curmudgeon on the council who's pushing back on you oftentimes actually has a legitimate point, but it's a matter of like a decision. How do you deal with the fact that, you know, in an imperfect world, you're, you're never going to have the perfect decision, Right.
3: That's a great point, Chuck, and I think it has, I hate to say this, as new urbanists, we have tremendous confidence in our own abilities and the abilities of our colleagues to solve problems, but I think we also have to be really frank, and and CNU is working on a new strategic plan right now as the board, and we are, we're being really careful to try to define what our scope is, and so... The guy on council who has a big issue, we have to be able to be humble enough and honest enough to say when we can't solve that problem, that it's something that's not within the scope of the zoning code or it's not within the scope of the comprehensive plan or it's not within the scope of physical planning altogether. I mean, there's some things that planning can solve for and there are just some things that it cannot. And so we can do a lot of creative solutions to a lot of issues we need to invest in learning humility
0: yeah on that note humility let's switch to zoning codes <laughs> zoning has never been as like discredited as it is now and also as like good as it is now you I feel like you have the flip sides I've seen the work you all have done I think it is brilliant in many many ways It's pushing the boundaries on what zoning is and how zoning is done. But whether it's the color of law and the idea of zoning as a tool uh, for oppression, uh, whether it is people waking up in a YIMBY movement to what zoning does to uh, distort housing prices upward and lock neighborhoods into either decline or enclaves of affluence, zoning is had a rough stretch. Like people are starting to be less and less enamored with it. I'd like to give you all an opportunity right before we dig deep into coding to make the case for why zoning is both a positive tool. And I'm going to use the word progressive, a tool for actually doing positive things as opposed to be like oppressive things in our communities. Why, why should we want a good zoning code? And why should we want someone who really gets coding? Well,
3: It's a big question because zoning can be, it can be horrific. It can absolutely guarantee segregation, both economically and culturally. It can do tremendously negative things to the environment, to the economy. But when it's done well, it's a funny thing because I'm an architect and I had friends and colleagues who asked me, why did you get into zoning? It seems so mind-numbingly boring. But when you look at how you use words and standards to authentically and carefully craft law that reflects the character of place, to me it is the most beautiful tool we have that if you use it creatively and carefully, you're reflecting places like like savannah georgia that is so exquisitely beautiful on so many levels all of us we can all write the rules to make that happen i find it an incredibly creative thing to do as well as probably the most rewarding work i can participate in
0: yeah marina
1: it's um for better or worse it is the it is the best tool we have to regulate development. And we know we have to regulate it at some level. We've actually done work in, in places that have you know, very, very light zoning, if none at all. And there's a direct correlation to how good those places look. I heard Ward Davis today at the NTBA, and I, I intend to challenge him on this, uh, say that, oh, we've solved the zoning. Form-based code, everybody's doing it. It's kind of fine. It's done. And I, I, I don't find that to be the case at all. We're still having to convince Municipalities of the the buy right mixed use and the and the small scale enabling small scale development. I mean enabling the great places, the savannas and the and the Charlesons that we kind of want to see. We have also, on the other hand, seen zoning be used as a tool to oppress or to as an elitist tool, even as a as a tool to control race. You know, a racist agenda. In some respects, that's why it's so powerful, and that's why. Being able to tweak it, doing what, as Susan coined this term, zoning acupuncture, which I love and we've been using a lot now. Some cities just need that, minor, minor tweaking because they're already on their way. And in other places, it's an absolute, complete overhaul.
0: Right. Please. Please.
1: So on on the plenary from
2: the night before last when the local group was was talking about Savannah and as beloved as it is they were putting picture after picture after picture on the screen of these great buildings that are illegal in about seven different ways it's powerful because you know if our most beloved places on this continent were scraped today the majority of them couldn't be rebuilt because we have these absurd laws that make us poor unhealthy and you know environmentally lousy stewards so it's the most powerful of any of the tools that we have so yeah.
1: I mean, the, our communities look the way they do because of the zoning. Right. Those communities that look great happen to have great zoning codes, and those communities that don't look great don't. And I'm not talking about the right. stuff that was built 200 years ago, I'm talking about the more recent stuff.
0: Let's talk about great zoning codes. I met all of you for the first time. I met you. You didn't meet me because I was just a, a guy sitting in the audience at a smart code workshop. Uh, you all presented. I was in awe. I was stunned. I came to learn. I felt like I learned a lot. I, I think a lot of our listeners understand at an abstract level what zoning is, but maybe don't understand the nuance between like a Euclidean use-based code, a form-based code. I know you're 15, 20 years into this, but it still is kind of a revolution. Uh, there's more and more places. Hazel, you keep a great map of, uh, of all these places. Can you just describe a little bit the change from a use-based code to a form-based code, and why that is an, not a subtle nuance, but but really a dramatic shift. Hazel, you want to start with that one? Sure.
2: A use-based code and a form-based code does the same thing, but just they are turned inside out, and so it's all about what is prioritized. A form-based code seeks to extract the DNA of the highest performing places locally, And enable that by right. So it first deals with form. Secondly, it deals with administration. And finally, it does deal with use. But the use-based code is exactly the opposite within its priority. So the form-based priority is... To have a mixed use, complete, convivial, connected sort of community, and we can keep on going down the seas because there's there's a lot more of them. So guiding the 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 form first. So you know, instead of and the easiest way to to say it probably is instead of you know the building in the middle of the lot surrounded by the sea of parking. Instead, the building comes up and addresses the street. The parking goes on the street in front of the building, or else behind the building. And there's this exterior room that that's formed by that street wall.
0: Okay. Marina. I like to also
1: tell people it's it's as basic as small, bil- small buildings facing small buildings, medium-scale buildings facing medium, and large facing large. Because And fundamentally, certain uses naturally are better for small buildings, and others are naturally better for medium, and others are better for large, and it sorts itself out. And the public or the community tends to intuitively understand that much more than they understand uses, because the uses get so jumbled up and it may be zoned residential but in reality they're allowing you know 17 uses that are not residential by virtue of the fact that most places are intrinsically to a certain level mixed use to begin with so it's really about recognizing that the form and the character of your community matters more than what the use is Because we look at savannah we'll walk down the street and we see these buildings that have changed uses about you know eight times in the past 100 years so you speak to character and 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 people get it
0: Right, right. That's the thing that connects us?
1: I, I think it does. I think yeah. it's one of, the, one of the things. When you speak to f- people about what do you want the character of your community to be, don't talk to me about uses. Talk about the character. Right. And then you code for that character.
0: When you go into a community, what, what are the most common things that you see that cities are struggling with from a zoning standpoint? What, what are those? If you could just say, hey, uh, here's like three things you should do tomorrow, I'm not asking you to solve every problem but like here's here's some good guidelines for you to know you're on the right track What kind of things would you focus on? Susan, go ahead.
3: I'm quoting Rick Bernhardt now, who was the planning director in Nashville for years. And he wrote a number of form-based codes across the city. But he started incrementally. And the three of us were having dinner with him a few years ago in Dallas. And he told us this, that he didn't have the political support on council. So he thought about, okay, what can I tweak in my zoning code to make a difference for the urbanism? So he started with three things all parking was required to be behind the building. Instead of setback lines, he had build two lines for downtown. This is all for downtown. And he required a certain percentage minimum glazing. So if you get those three things right, you, you get uh, no blank walls, you get active frontages, and you're not walking through a seas of parking lots. So if you don't do anything else, do that. I mean, that really is the project for code reform. It's the biggest little thing. And and those three are the things you have to do.
0: Okay. Hazel, you have anything to add to that? Is that a, is that a, good, is that a good list?
2: That's a perfect list. I think the only thing I would add to that is it doesn't, unlike uh, Nashville, it doesn't necessarily have to be just downtown, but it does have to be on the pedestrian network. Andres loves to say, if you try to make every street great, no street will be great. So it's not like you can ask all of the city to be in that that walkable, bikeable, transit-friendly urban format. But you certainly
1: can prioritize uh, a pedestrian network.
0: Yeah, Marina. Perhaps. I think
1: it's also about recognizing that in most, you know, Miami was the exception, but in most cities, you have to recognize that the suburban stuff is still going to is still going to remain. And a form-based code may not necessarily be the right thing for that. So what are the tools? And, and, re- and reassuring people. You know, you, to reassure the transportation engineers, it's about telling them, you know what, certain streets are going to prioritize automobiles, and that's fine, and, and that's where your standards apply. But there are some areas in which the suburban standards will have to be maintained as well, and recognizing that and still improving the coding for those areas too is an important part of trying to make the places that really need to be urban be excellent urbanism.
0: We just saw in Austin a lot of work go into a citywide code that seemingly right now has come to mean nothing. Uh, It wasn't adopted. It was voted down. I know you all have worked. All of you, you mentioned Miami Marina, there's Denver. I know Buffalo did this. Uh, There've been a lot of like citywide changes. Tell me what you would recommend. If I'm coming to placemakers, are we rewriting the entire city code, doing the whole thing, or are we approaching this in a different way? Is there an easier way to essentially devour this elephant, or is it got to be all at once?
2: The way to devour the elephant it depends on how big your appetite is today. In some cities, their, their use-based part of their code is full of... Major flaws. In some places where where we are rewriting them all together, we're doing it in a way, like Marina said, that it's both form-based and use-based in one document, but two very different and distinct characters that that one document's governing. And, and ensuring that you always need to be increasing people's optionality. An option is the right, but not the obligation. So to ensure that, that you're increasing the optionality enough within the city to not get that, that uh, full court you know, pushback on you. So for most cities, rewriting the whole thing at once isn't the right choice because they don't have the political will, the budget, to get that done. So the incremental approach to things is really, really effective.
0: How do we do this? Well, go ahead, Susan.
3: I think I want to go back to Austin one second and then I'll come to this. Yeah, please. Because that was my first job out of college was in Austin and I love the city. It's an amazing place, but there is a huge industry of enablers entitlement experts because their code was so laborious and difficult to understand and the process took months and months and months to get a simple site plan approved for a building that was by right. So I have dear friends from college that their whole living is based on getting you through that system. So one thing about Austin that I think any sort of a major overhaul was going to hit a whole lot of resistance politically because that industry in that city is so big. So I'm just saying that.
1: Well, by the way, we encountered that in Miami too, but the lawyers still found ways to, even though the code was simplified, they still found ways to figure out ways in which to process zoning and complicate the system.
0: Yeah. Do we have to do this citywide? I mean, Hazel said we don't. Okay. Uh, Here's the deal.
1: I mean, there's benefits and there's pros and cons to both. So, the cities, the places like Nashville, who do it neighborhood by neighborhood by neighborhood by neighborhood, it worked for Nashville, and it means that they have, it, it's, it's probably laborious to administer administratively, but it was probably more, it was more easily adopted politically. And they went in and they deliberately did master plans before they adopted the codes. A code like Miami uh, or Denver, when it was for the entire city, probably took longer, but there was incredible political support, you know, from the top on down. And um, it required a complete reshifting. But now it's eas- it's easier to administer. And it has been actually been proven to be quite successful. That what people were objecting to, ha- the, the code actually resolved. And there's many less people coming out to object projects and that sort of stuff. Um, there is another way to do it, which is to have it be optional. So, for example, in Columbia Pike in Virginia, so they were able to get affordable housing. And a lot of affordable housing by adopting an overlay of a form-based code that was activated... In, in a discretionary way, one of the reasons it was so successful was that the first developers weren't go, in a state like Virginia, where state rights, where property rights are so strong, you, you, they didn't want to have to force property owners to do one thing. So it was it was optional. By virtue of the fact that it's optional, you have two systems that now have to be have to be administered, which can be complicated. But the reason it was successful is that even though the form-based code imposed way more additional standards, the capacity was such that they could build so much more from the as of right to what the, 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 the form-based code allowed, that they were really able to extract a wonderful benefit for that corridor in terms of affordable housing. So it, it isn't one solution, it, it really depends on the community. You know, if there is the political will, because we know that the, the beauty of what a form-based code can do, if there is the political will, and if there is this, the stamina to do one for the entire community, it's preferable. Yeah, go through the brain drain once.
3: I agree with all of that. Uh, But I think there's a best strategy, lowest political problem process, and that is to write a single code that has... I mean, all three of us love to use the transectism as our operating system because it's clear and understandable relative to Euclidean zones. So write the model, write the base code for the city and adopt it in the urban fabric, the good historic urban networked fabric, because that's usually easy. And then over time, if you want to activate nodes or corridors or whatever, then you can map it progressively over time. And then that way you're not doing a huge shift, but the Staff only has one code they're going to have to deal with. The thing about Nashville is they wrote from scratch every single one of those codes, So now the staff has to has the brain damage of knowing 25 codes. right. So you know yeah.
0: we're going to open this up for questions. If anybody in the audience here has a question they would like to ask, you get a chance to do that. Here's kind of a follow-up question to all this. One of the things that I have seen is that in a lot of places, it just takes an obscene amount of time to get an approval. Kind of one of the promises of the form-based code approach is that we can shorten that timeline.
3: In some places. In
0: some some, place. Okay, I want you to talk about that nuance. Because a lot of places, slow approvals is a, is a feature, not a bug for some places because what tends to come down the line is so bad. But the idea of improving a place to me denotes a certain level of investment, a certain level of building, a certain level of new stuff, a form-based code. How does this help make that a better process that results in better projects and and, and more quickly?
1: So I'm amazed in the places I go to, and I'm sure it's the same with uh, Susan and Hazel, that the the number of property owners or developers that come up to us and say, we're willing to be down-zoned if you just streamline the process and make it more predictable for us. We know what we want to do. We want to be more affordable. We want to provide more choices. Just streamline it for us. And the beauty about a form-based code, in the sense that it is, it does create a more predictable form, is that it can enable that. So yes, writing that part of it is easier. You've got to simplify the process on the other end of it so that it, you do actually end up getting a simplified process. And the cities that have adopted that are now tracking this you do see a correlation. I mean, in my, I'll use the examples of Miami because I, I I call them every six months or so to sort of catch up on it. There, the process has been streamlined. There's less opposition to projects. And it, it is functioning the way it was intended to do. We know that developing has become more and more costly and all of that. So you cannot adopt a code without significantly simplifying the
3: process along with it.
0: Yeah. yeah, Susan?
3: That That is absolutely the best practice. But I just want to be clear that There's an assumption that, in fact, Peter Katz always says that form based codes are done by right, and we like to use that phrase as well, but that's not what makes it a form based code. And the by right part is at the discretion of the local politicians, and we strongly encourage it, and we work diligently like Marina said, to simplify and make very predictable the process. But at the end of the day, it's the political will of the planning commission and council. And a lot of times we work in places where the council refuses to give up the discretionary authority over zoning. And it doesn't mean that it's not a form-based code, but it's just not as, as effective.
0: Sure. Sure. Oh, here we go. You want something you want to ask? Sure. All right, sit up here. Uh, I want to say your name and where you're from and then ask them your question.
4: Hello, nice to meet you. Um, I'm Daniel Acevedo. I uh, currently am the director of community development for the city of Rowlett. And we're currently going through a, um, a comprehensive update, a comprehensive master plan update for our community, uh, which includes a form-based code um, update. There are districts that are form-based code. And so it's kind of an update to those districts. Um, So we're getting into a lot of different discussions Um, where we've been successful in the form-based code is now under question because we've been so successful, for example, multifamily. Now it's a big question as to, Hey, do we have too much multifamily? Are we seeing too much of it? Let's put an end to it. Let's shut it down. Um, So any suggestions would be helpful in terms of how do we deal with that uh, kind of knee-jerk reaction to shutting down something that was so successful. And then uh, the other question I have is is in relation to use types. Um, over your experience, you've seen use types used in, in different ways or implemented in different ways. Um, uh, kind of where do you see it going in terms of, you know, we deal with use with the form-based code, but kind of secondarily, is there any kind of advice or where are we headed with, with the future on that?
2: I'll answer the use question and then let someone else uh, answer the other one. But uh, on uses, the really the best practice today is to significantly shrink the number of uses that you lay out in your code. And instead of saying things that are so closely related, to group them all into many fewer categories because it, it just helps people uh, – respond to the changing marketplace without losing that time and money on on rezoning and and approvals in some places that we've recently worked uh, a tap room a cocktail room a, a brew pub and a bar all had separate zoning categories well you know come on just put them all together or and then it helps you not have issues like you know Today, escape rooms are suddenly very popular, but a lot of places are having trouble because that they have to go through a long rezoning process to make that happen, and it doesn't make sense. So, But we also are trying to really reduce the conditional use permit process as well. So if there are conditions, just spell them out, make them into a part of the regulation so that it becomes quicker
1: and easier. In terms of your first question, it's intriguing to hear because you're getting more multifamily Unless you prohibited multifamily before you're getting you 're not getting more multifamily housing because you you adopted a form based code you're probably getting multifamily because there's a market for it and if you heard Lori Vogue speak earlier today you know this this discrepancy of where you know seventy percent of our house i don't remember this the, the exact statistics but seventy percent of our housing is for single family but we really when you look at 65 to 75 percent of cities have are one and two people households, the market has recognized the fact that we need multifamily housing. You may be getting it because your code somehow activated it in ways that your previous code didn't. Chances are, if you want to get ahead of the game, you should you should probably keep on building it. The only way to stop building multifamily is to you know either downzone the property, which you're probably reluctant to do. In, in a st- you're from Raleigh, right, North Carolina? Raleigh. Oh, Raleigh. The- Oh, Texas. Okay, all right. So then I know less about Texas as a, as, a, as a property rights state. My name is Paul Glauser, and I'm from Utah. Some would say that the big difference between high-quality development and low-quality development has really nothing much to do with the development code. It has everything to do with the developer, whether it's a good developer or not. And that you really can't legislate, through zoning or any other means, good quality development. How would you respond to that?
3: I agree with it completely. Andres... He's been known to say something that I I won't quote him directly on on uh, the podcast, but on
0: a family friendly yeah, show. Right? E-
3: exactly. <laughs> but he says we do these beautiful, elegant plans and and they're always destroyed by the architects. Well, so it's not just the architects, but it's the developer trying to build profit into the job. And yes, the the designer and the developer together, they can find a way to make the most exquisite, explicit absolutely rigorous form-based code which by the way I don't recommend but they can find a way to get around that and do a really ugly building. You can't write a code that will predictably result in beauty. You can write a code that will predictably permit beauty. I mean, we can't write codes that create talented architects. We just can't do it.
1: Yeah, 100% agreed with that. I was just going to say you can't code for good architectural good design we led a two or two session yesterday where we were amazed as we were walking around looking at Savannah and thinking about all the codes we write and and how it savannah in small pieces breaks all those rules in all sorts of ways so it 's a reminder to us it was a nice reminder for me to, to be light in the way we code as light as possible to affect the most amount of change because frankly. We saw it functioning beautifully. It's not a lot that has to get coded. You want to get the urban design right. The architecture, number one, is very hard to do it at a a municipal level. It can be done for private development. But at a municipal level, most people don't want to administer that. So you just need good architects.
0: One of the things that I admire just personally about the three of you is that you do consulting work and you go to these places and you help them. But I've also seen all of your work result in staffs becoming better. Local people becoming smarter uh, cities becoming more competent it 's not a relationship where they hire you and you do something and go away There really is a capacity building aspect to it. Can you just talk a little bit about that part of what you do because I do consulting work for years and so i don 't look at like a consultant as a bad word, but I feel like what you do is a little bit beyond that even beyond what a normal consultant relationship is so just so talk one a little thing. bit about that.
1: I'll say one thing. At this, a few CNUs ago, I don't even remember where it is, Harriet Tregoning and the planner for Toronto, whose name escapes me Jennifer now. Kiesnatt. Jennifer Kiesnett. Jennifer that's right, were interviewed. Uh, both as very powerful planning directors. And they said something that resonated with me so much, I try to use it every, everywhere I go. Uh, because I think it's not a coincidence that you have women who get these codes adopted. They said when they begin meetings, they sit down and they say, okay, where is it that we agree? Let's talk about where we agree before we talk about where we don't agree. And you start the consensus building from that point forward. So finding out where there's common ground, as women, we're more inclined to do that anyways, there may, there may be some truth to it. I don't know.
0: Yes. Susan? I,
3: I, think, I think the thing of capacity building, it was interesting because part of it is very selfish in that we want our projects to do well. You know, I mean, it's, it's ego-driven. That's crass, but true. It's back to being female, I think. We fall in love with our clients at a professional level. I mean, like the two guys that were here in the room earlier they're still very dear friends. Um, I mean, we maintain these relationships for years because you work together so intimately in the charrette process and you're working on hard problems together and you're finding solutions and it builds a relationship that you don't just walk away from. And so because you stay involved at a friendship level, then they can text you at five in the morning and say, oh my goodness, we have this issue, please help. you know, And you respond that capacity building is not deliberate necessarily, but it's a product of loving the work and working on it together. And, and so the, the cities where we have those long-term relationships just do better.
1: I know you guys are this way. I think I'm this way. Optimism. I think projecting optimism when you're going into a city to do such a hard and arduous task is, is important to maintain.
0: Yes. Thank you, Hazel. Please. Uh,
1: for me, that capacity building
2: is completely intentional because we, even as all of the CNU, we are not going to make be able to make enough change on Earth just with us to make a difference in our children's lives. And you know, my son is only thirteen years old, and you know, even on a super simple, very selfish level, like if i want him to be able to like travel to amazing cities and enjoy anywhere near the sort of life that i've enjoyed there's no chance he can do that unless we make significant changes and and use less resources so for me one of my main goals in life is to share every lesson that we've learned as quickly and as possible to make more change so you know blogging on placemakers.com and doing the placemaking at work webinar education series and you know volunteering for as many classes as cnu cares for us to teach all those things for me is just a really important thing of what drives me
0: that was Hazel Boris uh, along with Susan Henderson they're from Placemakers also Marina Kearney with us from DPZ Courtney. Courtney. I, I will screw it up uh, that's okay. I, I apologize <laughs> you, I always tell people you can say my last name however you want um, <laughs> that's fine <laughs> so I apologize three of the most brilliant practitioners you're ever going to find let's give these people uh, uh, some gratitude for their time Thank you Thank for you. being on the podcast. Thank and, you. Thank uh, you. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns, everyone. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming
1: rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt.
2: Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now.
3: Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions.
2: Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating.
0: Oh, made the city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go
4: through
1: I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.